Hello, everyone, and welcome to another in our series of uh, perspectives on leadership. These are stories from the field from leadership practitioners that I've had the opportunity to work with or collaborate with in my career. And today I'm pleased to uh, welcome Neil Haywood as my guest. And so before we get into the three questions, I'd like to just pass to Neil to just briefly say a few words about himself and his background. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, Tony. And uh, look, hello, everyone. Thanks for thanks for listening to us. I now work as a portfolio chair, non-executive, board advisor, mentor and investor. So I kind of work advising companies on things like strategy, business transformation, people and ESG issues in particular. And I work mainly but not exclusively with relatively small startups and fast growing businesses. But that's on the back of what was a 35 year career uh, in corporate life, more than 25 years of which were spent uh, operating sort of in and around the C-suite and board level. I, I guess summarising it, uh, I worked in seven different sectors in the UK and globally. I worked in the public and then private sector. Uh, and whilst my career started in human resources and was centred around chief people officer roles, I was at various times also responsible for doing a lot of other things, including uh, business development and bids, business transformation, uh, corporate communications and corporate affairs, uh, network development and sales, and health, so safety and well-being, as, as, as well as HR. And, and you and I met, actually, right at the start of my professional mm. life, because we were both working for the Midland Bank. I joined the bank in 1986 as a graduate trainee in what we called personnel. And after I'd finished my one-year training program and spent a further year as a sort of personnel officer in compensation and benefits, you hired me, Tony, and we worked together for, for a while, uh, based in Southampton, England, uh, for Midland Personal Financial Services. So I knew you right, right at the, the start of my career, and it's nice to have a chance to, to chat to you when I'm in, I'm in another chapter altogether, having finished full-time corporate life. Yeah, indeed. And for those that may not know, Midland Bank was acquired by HSBC uh, some years ago. Um, but this was when Midland Bank Group existed as one of the top UK domestic and international banks. The first question is around your own experience of having to demonstrate leadership. So what I'm seeking is an example where you've had to demonstrate significant leadership and may have had a breakthrough effect um, and something that kind of you remember in your in your career so far. There are one or two moments that always stand out as the kind of um, kind of key moments and and when I look back on them I, I, that I've remembered them because I felt like I was under some form of spotlight where what I did or said could be material, could make a difference. And, I, and, and it's really the, the memory of the feelings of uh, those situations that have captured them in my, in my mind. So, so I'll share one. Um, back in the late 90s, I was appointed director of Group Human Resources for a, a FTSE 350 business. So this was kind of in career terms, I'm in my early 30s, and it's it's a graduation through to another level of seriousness in terms of size and scale of, of job. And, it, and it's a bit of a proving ground. And I'm hired by a CEO who's obviously vested a lot of time and effort in the process and decided for whatever reason that I'm, I'm the right person. And I start work uh, in, 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 uh, in his organization. And um, 
it was only a few weeks in that the chairman of the board came to me and said, well, we've decided the CEO, your boss, has got to go. So this is a listed Ooh. company. Uh, mm. And I've got the weekend in reality to finalise the arrangements with my boss for his departure, uh, getting ready for a stock exchange announcement on, on the Monday. And of course, this is a relationship that's built on some level of, of, of trust and respect. We've hardly got to know each other from a, from a working point of view. And I've basically got to have a conversation over the weekend that says, you are going, but we can talk about on what basis and how we message it. And there was broadly a kind of hard message and a, a softer message. The softer message was, uh, decided it's the right time to move on uh, for personal reasons. He was returning to uh, to the United States from the UK, having been an expatriate, um, you know, family circumstances, etc. And the harder message would have been a stock exchange announcement on the Monday saying we parted company and terminated the employment of. And obviously, there's mm. some financial differences between those two those two arrangements. So I have to have that conversation over the weekend in order to get the announcement away. And and the announcement was done. And, and um, it was the first time in my professional life that I was, I was really confronted with the gravity of the role in a public, in a public corporation, a listed entity, because this was a relationship. It was a relationship that I really chosen to be in. Um, mm. And yet here I had to sort of demonstrate my professional credibility and my professional skills putting aside the element of the relationship and friendship and trust that had started to be built and have to do the right thing corporately um, mm. in accordance with the instructions from the board. So it kind of brought home the tensions between the personal relationships and the professional situations and how that plays out in the role mm. of, a, of what we then called a, a human resources director. And obviously it kind of it's morphed into chief people officer since. Um, and then, of course, there are corollaries to this, because then I had to go through the whole process of hiring a new chief executive. Now, um, I've never done that uh, since in a listed business. So this was kind of new experience in and of itself, taking instruction from the board on managing that. And that instruction came from the senior independent director, because not surprisingly, the chairman also had to, st to stand down. This particular company was in financial trouble. The chairman had to stand down. So now I'm recruiting a chief executive and a new chairman and this is all playing out in a in a public spotlight and you can and, and you know how the financial press works there's there's always an element of what's going on at this company the share price is under daily scrutiny there's a lack of leadership there's a leadership vacuum um, hmm. and somebody's got to make an appointment happen and i'm the person trying to make an appointment happen with everyone and the vultures were circling this company around what its what its future fate was going to be so that was about three months of quite extraordinary pressure and uh, and stress going back and forth to the headhunter to candidates to um, uh, uh, trying to trying to make sure that we we said the right things in public negotiating to get two people to join at the same time being able to announce them and so on perhaps the leadership point here was nowadays when I think about it I get more nervous and anxious about that than I did when I was in the middle of it there was something about not knowing uh, what mm -hmm. I was doing that made it easier to deal with and cope with and to respond to calmly to events and I was incredibly fortunate that there were uh, and there was a network of, of trusted colleagues and advisors more senior people in HR than me 
that I could and did draw upon. So the value of the network I, I built up in my first you know, 15 or so years at work uh, paid, paid dividends. Clearly a very uh, interesting learning experience and probably one that you would have preferred to have had a bit later rather than after just a few weeks. <laughs> but, uh, um, and I th- what, what I'm intrigued by is the fact that in your practicing leadership day by day, it was an unfolding situation. It wasn't as if you knew the end point when you were told the CEO has to go. And you probably didn't know at that stage that the chairman would also have to no. go. Um, and so you're working in the moment with what you have, not necessarily having everything at your fingertips and having to make judgment calls and decisions that um, seemed hopefully the right yeah. the right ones at that time. Question two is around, it's the same kind of question, but it's more focused on one you've observed. So can you think of a, a leadership situation that you observed where someone, someone else demonstrated significant leadership? Well, I, I, will, I will mention uh, an organization and an individual in, in this instance. And I don't think they would be embarrassed to be to be mentioned and it, and it happens to be the place that i finished my own corporate life i spent four years at um the high speed two project um in uh, the uk between 2017 and 21 as my last corporate job as the chief people officer uh, hs2 is the largest construction project that the uk government has ever has ever invested in um by by a distance uh, britain's second high speed railway um and I was hired by a gentleman called Mark Thurston, who is still the CEO. Mark had joined me in the joined the organisation a few months before I did in about March 2017, and I started a few months later as his first sort of C-suite hire. Um, and the challenge that he had was he was installed by the government to get a grip on the project and persuade them it was worth investing in or not. So you could regard this as a a real turning point or uh, appointment. Um, it could have ended in the total closure of the program. As it happens, the program, uh, not quite in the original form, is still in existence, and there are now something like 30,000 UK jobs dependent on it. So this was a kind of pivotal appointment for the future of infrastructure and transport in the UK, um, the future of that program, the future of those 30,000 jobs, the, fu- the legacy that's being being created, and Mark Thurston was the person who was uh, who was given the role of being a CEO, and I was his chief people officer, reorganising and restructuring, um, and helping him put in place the right team uh, and so on. And I call him out for the following reasons: because I um, I think that this is unless you've been involved in something that has a public sector nature to it, you can't quite be involved in any sign off around the future of it. That there's an enormous amount of public theatre as well as public governance. So the CEO, Mark Thurston, would be called to public account select committee hearings. For those of you who don't know what they are, this is where politicians or, or civil servants or, or CEOs of government bodies, in effect, get scrutinised by a panel of MPs. And the hearings take place on camera 
and they can be a bit of a bear pit uh, or, or, or a nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition type scenario. So, so mm. Mark is one of those people who is, is, is constantly, um, he's under scrutiny all the time. What he brought to this job was a clear sense of personal leadership and passion. Um, we are going to get through this difficult time and build something as a legacy. Now, a, a sense of conviction and belief, a huge amount of personal resilience, an incredible amount of energy and organizational skill and drive. Um, easily the person I worked for who was the best motivator, I'd understand the level of scrutiny that you, that you get. Um, so there wasn't anybody in the country who didn't have an opinion about it of people uh, 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 around him in terms of delegating, empowering, trusting, um, and, and great personal fun to be with and around in the moments where the CEO cloak comes off, actually just great company and a hugely compelling life story. So for those of us who are you know, well-educated, um, yeah, I, I had a sort of grammar school education. I went to a good university. It was a kind of, I can, I can talk a little bit about coming from a poorer social economic background, but it was a pretty traditional story of social improvement. Mark started work at 16 as an apprentice on the London Underground and now in his mid to late 50s is leading Britain's largest ever uh, construction project. And that doesn't happen by chance, but equally there are lots of reasons why it doesn't happen for people who come from his sort of background. So all of that in a package is, is, um, is the example that I'll call out. And, and if I can give you the summary again, yeah, personal resilience, energy, drive and ambition, focus, ability to uh, uh, work out what makes the most impact most uh, quickly, to take on um, the challenges and to defend people, to admit mistakes and turn things around quickly, very decisive, very bright. All of those things are are his uh, are his uh, hallmark, too, and still does. There wasn't anybody in government who didn't think they had the right to ask questions and to crawl all over it. There wasn't anybody who didn't have. And so he was successful. In well, that, uh... so where where we where we got to? If you go from 2017, we have an organisation that the government is seriously thinking about shutting down. And in 2020, um, the government finally agrees that phase one London to Birmingham, in the order of something between 40 to 45 millions of, million, billions of pounds budget, is signed off. But to get that signed off, we have to demonstrate that HS2 has the capability, capacity and culture to get the job done. And that's through scrutiny from the Cabinet Office, the Department for Transport, the National Audit Office, the Treasury, uh, and the government's own sort of infrastructure experts. So we are going through an enormous a number of cycles of reviews. And the government at the same time has commissioned any number of third party think tanks and studies also to question. And we managed to get uh, the approval that we sought, which was we were fit for purpose and could, and could proceed. So you're suddenly going then from an organisation that has had a life where it's trundling along, um, employing a couple of thousand people, um, starting preparatory work, mapping out a route, and you can suddenly scale up, let the commercial contracts, and there are now 30,000 people working at 320 sites. So on that basis, yes, I think that's a, that's a success. But th those three years of constantly living on a knife edge of this might not happen, and persuading mm. everyone 
that it should happen is down to his his leadership and of course the team that he he assembled and from the outset he adopted an incredibly positive attitude around we can get this thing done and this is the greatest opportunity of our working lives and here's an opportunity to create a real legacy for UK PLC um, and 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 really quite inspiring. I'm very interested to learn your view about what's going to be required of leaders going forward, um, particularly with your background in both the private and public sector arenas. So what, what are your thoughts on that, Neil? <laughs> well, um, Marx prompted uh, some reflections on what I think will stay, things that, you, that, you're, that, that exist now that you're going to need, and things that you might need to, to add. Um, I think, the, I think the first thing to say is that, that leadership's changed an awful lot in my, in my lifetime. And I saw that our definition of it. When you and I were working together and, we, and I started work, you know, um, leadership was something that was defined a bit by the role you're in and where you sat in a business hierarchy. In, in other words, it was something that was kind of possessed or owned. Um, mm. But actually, you know, as time has gone on, it's become ever increasingly clearer to me, at least, that you know, leadership's found all levels in institutions. It's both formal and informal. It's about traits, situations, functions, behaviours, power, vision, values, charisma, into all of the intelligence, all of those things. So, picking it apart, what do I think is needed? Some of the fundamentals are always going to be needed. So, I think the mm-hmm. best leaders. They do have a, a vibrant vision and they need that to cut through all of the kind of clutter of information we and everyone receive in our everyday lives, um, which means they also have to be great communicators because uh, even if you've got a vision, it's how it lands with people uh, and there are multiple stakeholders in any situation. It has to land memorably. Um, kind of, if you, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. If you don't communicate where you're going, you're not going to get there either. So. Um, vibrant vision and communication. Um, I haven't worked for anybody in a senior leader's position who didn't have this second one, which was working incredibly hard, possessing a high IQ, being totally committed to the success of whatever it is that that, that, that they're doing. Um, so there's something here about focus and drive and concentration on making an impact. And I think the third thing that uh, that is true or has been true throughout my career and and, and stays uh, for the future is the best leaders I've worked with are kind of honest and quite forthright. They recognize that integrity is their greatest asset or friend. If they, if, if they aren't believable or believed, then they're, then they're going to find it very hard to get people to do things for them beyond instructing them or using darker arts, which is actually where that hierarchical position status leadership yeah. bureaucracy of 30 or 40 years ago, there was an awful lot of that then, and there's a lot less of it now. So that's if those are things that have always existed as differentiators and, 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 and play through into the future, I think on top of that, you're going to need to uh, be much more, much quicker and much more effective at decision-making simply because the speed of, of change is increasing rather than slowing in all walks of life, which means you're going to have to be much better at delegating, empowering and trusting because it's going to be about the big picture rather than mastering the narrow picture. 
there's a question mark there for me about a CEO role and whether you can keep having CEOs from narrow financial backgrounds and whether other walks of life corporately and skill sets aren't actually better. Um, so training people in functions and taking them right the way through a function and then appointing them to CEO from a narrow base, I'm not sure that's wise or, or good anymore. And then I think so you're suggesting they get more of a horizontal. I'm suggesting that it's no longer automatic uh, that you should be appointed a CFO, CEO if you've been a CFO. I think it's useful mm. to take somebody from their core skill set and give them an opportunity somewhere doing something completely different, where they have to play on a different set of strengths that go beyond the technical and functional into the personal and interpersonal. Um, and this is where, you, where I think taking people into uncomfortable situations brings out what level of emotional intelligence and connectivity they can build and followership they can build, as opposed to resting on <clears throat> the security of knowing things and knowing how to do things, which is what happens if you come up just through your, your functional space. Mm. All my best work personally, if I just make it about me just for one last second, is the fact that I had so many opportunities to do work that wasn't HR, um, mm -hmm. stretched me and made me a more effective C-suite operator. And in those situations, I had to lead not because I knew stuff, but because I knew how to get the best stuff out of people working for me, because they were the ones who knew stuff. Uh, and I think that's quite an important transition. And then the last thing, building on that, I, I just think you lead through influencing now, not just through the power of position. I think that is going to, I think that's mm -hmm. going to grow and grow. So I guess my summary is, in today's quite complicated, ever-changing environment, leaders with integrity, vision, and commitment will always be kind of timeless assets to any organization, mm -hmm. but they're going to have to lead through influence. They're going to have to make decisions much more quickly and they're going to have to stay on top of the big, the big picture. So I, I, that's kind of where, where I think we kind of where I think we are projecting forward a, a, a little bit. Um, so the the leader who likes to micromanage probably is not going to last. Well I, 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 I don't see how it's possible, but of course, I'm not sure we design organizations in a way that enables that trait to happen as much. I mean, I, when I think about some of the relatively hierarchical, structured, uh, disempowering bureaucracies that I worked on earlier in my career, there was plenty of opportunity for that micromanagement and siloed working to exist. Mm. And I just think organizations are designed with with much greater fluidity. Um, if I think about HS2 again, uh, Mark and I reorganized how that business was running uh, three times in four years. When I was at Serco Group for six years, I know we reorganized it four times in, in six years. I just think this is the reality of, of corporate life now. And in that scenario, you can't be on top of everything and all of the detail. You're gonna have to work out where you focus and where you want to make impact um, and the rest is going to be about hiring great people and trusting them to get things done for you uh, and for you means not instructing them but influence them influencing them to do things for you and in the right way too uh, actually that's yeah. one other thing i um the stuff that's come out about behaviors in the uk the cbi scandal um, there's been occasional shadows over ceo behaviors um uh, as well throughout my corporate life. That stuff around behaving properly and mm. um, not, uh, 
not taking advantage or exploiting power positions, that, that, that is not a temporary blip. That is here to stay. That is how society now is. Um, mm. It gets a bit dismissed in the right-wing press as being kind of wokeism and, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of not, not good. But actually, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree. Couldn't disagree more. Um, and again, perhaps just a reflection, when I started work, when you had a workplace environment where there was a drinking culture, people would still drink in offices, people went down the pub at lunchtime um, and so on, you were bound to have uh, you know, poorer standards of uh, behaviour and uh, things yeah. go wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, thank goodness corporate life isn't anything like that now. It's immeasurably improved in terms of its professionalism. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a healthy note to end, I think. Thank you. Thank you.